When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You go into our memorial exhibit and you look around these walls and you're surrounded by 2,977 portraits of people, floor to ceiling, all four walls, and they are two and a half years old to 85 years old. They are from every sector of the economy, every ethnicity imaginable, every faith tradition. They are us. That's Alice Greenwald talking about the photos of the people who died in the attacks of September 11th, 2001. The photos are part of the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, where she is CEO and president, and where visitors can pay tribute to lives lost, learn about exceptional heroism, and find inspiration for the future. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Alice Greenwald has been with New York City's 9-11 Memorial since 2006, when the 16-acre site was still a seven-story deep hole in the ground. Turning it into a finished memorial was not easy. Greenwald had to keep in mind the interests of everyone, from 9-11 families, to historians, to the general public. Today, millions of people every year tour the tree-lined plaza and its two reflecting pools that stand on the footprint of the Twin Towers, and they visit the accompanying museum as well. Later this year, Alice Greenwald will be stepping down from this important job. Listen and learn why Alice Greenwald is one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. I'm speaking today with Alice Greenwald, who has been heading the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. Alice, we're thrilled to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to be here. Well, I know you've headed the 9-11 Memorial and Museum since Ground Zero was still a construction site, and now you're leaving this incredible job after 16 years. 
So this coming 9-11 must mean a great deal. Have you thought about that? Oh, I think about it a lot. I think about the fact that after 21 years, we are keeping our promise that we made to remember. Um, you know, it's now in, we're three decades now, we're into the third decade after the attacks. And, and the commitment to remember, the commitment never to forget is, is as strong as it was. But I'll tell you something, over the past couple of years, I've been really struck by um, how many of the family members who read names, you know, the, the mm-hmm. commemoration is a, a names reading, which when you're, you know, including nearly 3,000 people's names, uh, the number of victims for both 9-11 and the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, um, that can take four to four and a half hours. And so mm-hmm. there's about 140 people every year who are selected by lottery, who read the names of their loved ones and those of others killed um, in these attacks. And over the past several years, um, uh, an increasing number of readers are young people who never knew the people they are commemorating. They Uh are grandchildren of people who were killed. And, And it is a signal of you know, the span of a generation, a generation um, coming up, growing up in this post 9-11 world, remembering people they never had the opportunity to know personally. And to me, that becomes increasingly more and more poignant, but also a kind of a call to arms, if you will, is sort of like, we have a responsibility to make sure this next generation knows what happened, who these people were, what a um, unprecedented experience. It was um, the worst terrorist attack in our nation's history. Um, and and also, um, you know, how we responded 21 years ago as a nation and as a world community, we came together uh, all too briefly. We came together, we cared for one another, we demonstrated tremendous compassion. There was um, selflessness and courage. There was a commitment to rebuild all of these things that were rooted in empathy and um, a sense of connectedness to one another, community and unity and and, and hope. Um, and these are things that are missing in the world these young people um, are growing up into. And, and I'm very conscious of how important uh, this commemoration is as a, a moment for another generation to understand and to take on the mantle of responsibility of remembrance. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the other answer to your question is actually really personal, which is, of course, that this is going to be the very last 9-11 commemoration that I will attend in the role of president and CEO of the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. So it is, um, you know, it's personally bittersweet. I I love this place and I love the people I've been privileged to work with and work for and the community that I've gotten to know over um, these now almost 17 years um, of affiliation. And it's going to be um, a little bit of um, a, a heartbreak for me uh, to stand there those four and a half hours and think that, you know, it will not be the same next year. It will not be the same for me, although the ceremony will continue, which gives me great um, a, a great sense of comfort. The other thing, and I, I don't mean to keep going on, but I can remember, you know, you talked about when I first got here in 2006. And um, what was at Ground Zero at that point was literally an enormous 16-acre, seven-story deep hole in the ground. Uh, there was a chain-link fence around it. There was actually the path train was 
the tracks, they were still going through at a subterranean level, but there was nothing there. It was entirely absent uh, of everything. And um, in those years, those first several years that I was here, um, we held the commemoration on 9-11 at the base of the site. So you were literally at what we call bedrock and you would walk down a ramp that was or what had been the hall road used by the recovery workers to bring the debris out of the site and up from those seven stories down up to grade and, and then transported over to um, fresh kills to be forensically reviewed um, for personal property and, and for human remains. But on those days, the, the day of the ceremony, we would walk down this ramp almost in a processional. We would be given roses at the top of the ramp and you would carry your rose down to the bottom and there would be a pool of water, just like a little pool that we would put our roses into. And it was a simple gesture, but so incredibly powerful. And, and I look now when I'm standing on the plaza during the commemorations and here you are, you're standing in this verdant park, you know, this, this plaza with 400 oak trees and the two enormous memorial pools. They're each an acre in size, the footprints of the twin towers. And, um, and in this space of memory, you're, you're now surrounded by new office buildings and a fabulous transportation hub and, a performing arts center that's going to open in a year's time. And it is a place that has come back to life. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think about that trajectory from walking down a ramp to a vacant hole in the ground, you know, to place a rose in a body of water to um, standing in the middle of this amazingly beautiful, contemplative, reflective, sacred space that is also a place of life. And it's, it's been quite a journey. And I think it is to the credit of um, our city um, and our nation and the community of, of people affiliated with, um, you know, uh, with 9-11 commemorance, uh, commemoration and remembrance that, that we have um, actually gone this journey and come out um, to this place of renewal. It's really very powerful. Well, just listening to you and, and your memories and uh, the transition that's taken place over time and the fact that it is this extraordinary place to reflect today. Um, I know it's it's bringing out a lot of emotions in me and, and tapping into a lot of memories, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. And I don't think there's anyone who was alive on 9-11 who doesn't remember where he or she was at that moment. And I, I wonder uh, where you were and what you remember about that. Oh, okay. So, well, first of all, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, 9-11 was um, witnessed by an estimated, um, it is 2 billion people on the mm. day of the attacks. Um, and at the time in 2001, that was a third of the world's population. So, um, you know, if you were alive 21 years ago on September 11th, you knew what happened. And of course, um, everyone remembered where they were. As you say, uh, I was in Washington D.C. My family and I had just moved from New Jersey. Um, my husband uh, at the time had just started uh, a new job at the World Wildlife Fund. I was um, taking on a bigger job at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, where I had been working in various capacities for the previous 14 years, and um, 
I was at home literally unpacking moving boxes. Uh, my husband was on his way to New York with colleagues for a meeting, and um, I had did not turn the TV on. I was waiting for a carpenter to come in and do some work uh, with the radiators that we needed covers for. And the gentleman had come, and the phone rang, and it's my husband calling from the train to say something has happened, and mm. nobody is telling us what it is. They've stopped Amtrak. You know, the, the train has stopped um, outside of Philadelphia. It's been stuck for several minutes now, and we're not going forward. Nobody is telling us what's happened. Can you turn on the TV? At which point I turned on, I believe it was the Today Show, I turned on the news, and this was um, just moments before the second plane hit uh, the South Tower. And um, so the first plane had already struck. The image on TV was um, unimaginable. It looked like I was looking at a, you know, a Hollywood horror movie with this big gash in the, the side of, of Tower One. And the carpenter who had come to measure for these radiator covers is hearing the news in the room next to me. And he comes in. This is a man I didn't know that I, I did not, had never met before. And he came in and like me was totally riveted um, by what we were seeing. I gave my husband the, the quick download of what we were being told on the news. Uh, he hung up and said he would call me you know, when they got to the city. Of course, they never got to the city that day. Um, and I didn't hear from him for several hours. But um, we watched uh, as the um, news unfolded. And of course, uh, when the first of the two towers, which happened to have been the second one hit, the South Tower collapsed uh, just a few minutes before 10 o'clock, um, this stranger and I did what human beings do in these kinds of moments. We simply grabbed for each other. We hugged one another. And um, it was the most natural thing in the world that both of us looked at this absolutely unimaginable moment of um of profound human loss of unthinkable destruction and we just needed to be with another human being and and hug and you know i i think about that uh often because um that and a, another incident that happened which is often when i say is my real 9-11 story which happened a month later um a month later <laughs> at the weekend of october 10th um my husband and I were celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary, and we had made plans months before to um, go to New York City uh, and um, stay at the plaza where we had spent one night of our honeymoon in 1976, because in 1976, one night at the plaza was all we could afford. And 25 years later, guess what? One night at the plaza was all we could afford. So we made uh, a reservation months earlier to stay at the plaza for our anniversary. And we made a dinner reservation at a very posh restaurant that was a few blocks north of the plaza. And, you know, after 9-11 happened, we, we talked a lot about whether we would keep our plan. And, you know, we had lived outside of New York for almost 20 years. It was home to us. And we just felt like we needed to show our support for the city and we decided we would go. And this is exactly a month after the attack. So we are driving up the New Jersey Turnpike and I can remember to this day turning as we began to see the skyline of lower Manhattan across the Hudson. And I knew, as everyone did, I knew intellectually what had happened. 
But seeing that skyline for the first time with my own eyes without the towers dominating the skyline was like a punch to the gut. I, I, I understood this now at a visceral level. I had not processed before then. And then we get into the Lincoln Tunnel and we come out the other side and there are firefighters in uniform with boots in their hands and they are collecting from the cars coming out of the tunnel for the widows and the children. Mm. Uh, firefighters who had been killed, first responders who had been killed. So our welcome back to New York was um, searing in so many ways. And we drive up to the plaza and the streets are empty. It's a ghost town. And we get to the plaza and I will tell you, the doormen came to us and hugged both of us for coming. Uh. There was no one else in the hotel. And we get into our room, you know, we get dressed for dinner. We walk the two blocks north to the restaurant, which in any other time, and you've been to these restaurants, you know what I mean, you would walk in the door and everybody is sitting two inches from each other at their tables, talking to the person at their table and not acknowledging the people on either side of them. That would have been a typical, you know, highbrow restaurant experience in New York. That evening we opened the door and it was boisterous and people were talking to one another across the room they were speaking to the busboy at the back from the table in the front there was this energy that i had not seen before we sat we were ushered to our table we sat down and again you know we were two inches on either side from the couples sitting next to us and within a second one of the people next to us said where are you from Mm-hmm. Are you visiting New York? You know, who, what brought you here? And conversations began. And there was this sense, very unfamiliar to me, but at the same time, very real, that we were all, it was, it was a level playing ground. Everybody was in this together. Everybody needed to be making contact with other human beings. It was a different kind of New York. And if you were in New York in those weeks after 9-11, people have told me about this. It was very present, this sense of just caring for one another. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember uh, Justice Sotomayor, our Supreme Court Associate Justice, um, speaking at the 9-11 Memorial Museum a few years ago and telling her 9-11 story. And it was just that kind of thing. She, she's a New Yorker. This was her city was very personal to her. And she remembers walking down the street, not on 9-11, but in the days after 9-11, seeing a complete stranger across the street weeping, walking across the street to hug that stranger. Mm-hmm. That that sense of connectedness was the post 9-11 experience in New York in the days and weeks after the attacks. And I will tell you that I didn't know in 2001, October of 2001, that I would be taking on this job, that I would be asked to lead a group to build the 9-11 Memorial Museum. I had no idea that this would be an experience that would inform the work I would have to do. But I would have to tell you now that I believe it did, that I think the experience of seeing New York a month after 9-11 taught me something profound about the way we responded to this unimaginable adversity and the way we came together as a community, as a nation, as a world community, we really did come together. And that is built in now, it's baked into the messaging of this museum. 
Yeah, you know, just again, listening to all of this, I'm sure that those who are listening with us as you speak are recalling their own experiences. And I think we went through this collective trauma and a deep, deep desire for human connection. Yes. As I say that, I think about a quote of yours as you were talking at that moment about the reality of the museum, uh, the, the memorial that would be created. You said this was a project of empathetic listening. What did you mean by that? Well, we did a lot of listening and a lot of listening to a lot of people. You know, um, when we started to work on the museum, it was not even five years since the attack. So uh, emotions were still very raw. Um, there were uh, so many different constituents, um, meaning people with uh, stakeholders, with a, a vested interest in what this museum was going to be, what stories it would tell. Um, what opportunities it would have. And um, there were a lot of opinions, I have to say. And um, we heard from family members of victims and first responders and rescue and recovery workers and people who had evacuated and survived the attacks and downtown residents and downtown workers and landmark preservation. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of all these people who were true stakeholders. I mean, they really did care deeply about what this project um, would be. And um, there were many points of view. And I would have to say, while all of the points of view were legitimate, they were most often <laughs> not compatible. <laughs> and um, so we had a lot of uh, listening and negotiating among different points of view. So one of the things that I felt we had to do from the very beginning, in addition to making a commitment to listen to everybody, <laughs> which was um, challenging, but essential, um, was to remember that these people, so many of the people who with, were stakeholders, were deeply, um, personally filled with pain. Mm -hmm. That their aspirations for this project, uh, as divergent as they might be from one another's, were they all shared something in common, and that is that they came from a place of true loss, true pain, true desire to make meaning out of something which honestly seemed at the time so meaningless, you know, so unnecessary, the pain that they were going through, why this had to happen. And, and so we had to train ourselves to listen with empathy, you know, that, that people would say things to us. And I remember one family member literally coming up to me and the way she spoke to me, even though this wasn't what she did, but it felt like she had grabbed me by the lapels, you know, and was shaking me. I mean, it was so intense. And, and so emphatic and so urgent. And, you know, in other situations, you might say, I don't have to deal with that kind of thing. You know, I'm just going to walk away. We couldn't walk away. Yeah. These were the people we had to, we had to work with. And whatever we produced had to feel authentic to their experience and, and, and their memories and had to do justice to those memories and pay tribute to their loved ones and um, honor the site and all of those things. So um, we had to listen with empathy. So I think that's when I said that I was I was thinking about the um, the process by which we, you know, encountered all of the different um, moments of guidance and uh, suggestions and demands from people who were really, truly um, invested in what this project would be. 
Well, and and that loss and pain was incalculable in so many ways that, you know, even as as you recall, feeling uh, that vicariously, we could never truly understand the depths of it if we didn't experience it that directly. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. You fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. I would imagine that as you were thinking about the experience you wanted to convey with the memorial, with the museum, to the families of the 9-11 victims, you must have wanted to make something for them that would be a, a fitting tribute. And I wonder about that, the reaction for them, as well as for ordinary visitors and what you would have liked and what you still like for them to take away from this experience? That is such a good question. You know, um, we were very conscious from the beginning of just imagining this museum and this project and how it would integrate with the memorial that one of the great challenges of the project that we was that we were having to address both private grief in a public space and the public need to grieve even when if they didn't lose anything. Mm -hmm. that there was both public and private grief, and the needs were different, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were also conscious of the fact, um, I think, and we're increasingly more so, that um, there would be, you know, for a period of time, and it seemed at the time indefinite, where people would be coming in with their own 9-11 memory, 
what in the museum business we call the entry narrative, the visitor's entry narrative. And that, you know, this couldn't be um, a kind of conventional museum where you've got the authority, the curator, the authority telling you what you need to know about this historical moment or this particular work of art or whatever, that in fact, everyone coming into this museum for a period of time was their own expert in it because they had experienced it themselves in one way or another. And uh, that changed the way we thought about our delivery of the experience. But then we also were aware that there would be a time when people would come in without a memory of 9-11 and whatever we built needed to speak to them too. So there are different answers to your question, and there were different um, objectives that we were trying to meet. So for the family members of victims, I would have to say that our hope was that they would find this to be a place of comfort, uh, that it was a place to contain their grief so that they could go on with their lives, that they would know that their loved ones would never, ever be forgotten. And, you know, this was... Um, a, a goal compounded by a reality that continues to this day, which is that about 40% of the families who lost loved ones at the World Trade Center have never received remains of their loved ones. Mm. You know, the circumstances, the physics of the collapses of the buildings meant that um, remains were not there or were so um, damaged, damaged to the point where they were not identifiable. And... Um, they don't have a cemetery to go to these families. They don't have a place uh, which contains their grief that they can visit and then go back and live their lives knowing that it's there, that there's permanence to it. And the memorial and the museum had to fulfill that need for those people. Um, and, and so, um, you know, in many respects, I think we thought of that part of our goal, our mission as, um, reassuring families of the permanence of remembrance, that their loved ones um, would be remembered, that this place would be here for them when they needed to come um, and commune and, and grieve, uh, that that was a promise we were going to keep. And um, knowing that it was there then would allow people to go on with the rest of their lives. So that was almost a therapeutic piece of what we were trying to do. You know, for ordinary visitors, and by that I mean people without a direct personal loss, um, but who witnessed this or, um, you know, uh, from afar or near, whatever the case might be, um, for those who remember it as a lived memory, uh, our goal was that they, whatever they experienced in the museum, they had to um, see as authentic to their experience. You know, and when you think about history, uh, the way different people experience the same historical event is not always the same. There are many variations of what one goes through in, in these moments of, um, of traumatic history. But our narrative and our presentation had in our minds to be authentic and it had people had to see themselves in the story so that if, even if the narrative that we were presenting wasn't exactly their narrative on the day of 9-11, it would, they could see themselves in it. They could say, yes, this is what happened. So that was critical to us. It needed to resonate as true. Um, and it also needed to be not a traumatic re-immersion in 9-11, but this wasn't going to be a sort of 
and I, I don't mean this in any negative way, but a disnification of 9-11. We didn't want people to feel like they were in 9-11 land. We wanted them to experience this with an understanding that they were coming into contact with the human experience of a historical event. And we were trying to build a bridge of empathy and compassion um, for those who did live through it in a very direct way. Um, and so you re-encounter the history, but it is on a path towards hope. And that was very important to us, that we weren't going to leave people in um, a place of darkness. It was very important that we left people um, in a place of hope. And then the final answer to your question is for this generation that doesn't have a personal memory of 9-11. And for them, we needed to really make sure we were telling a story that could give them that understanding of what it would have been like to be alive on that day, to witness this event, to understand, as I said before, the humanity, the human experience of this. It isn't just the numbers and the number of planes and the number of victims and the you know, sequence of the day. Those are the building blocks to understanding what happened. But what we want them to walk away with is the humanity of the victims, that these are people who should not be defined by the circumstances of their death. They are people just like you and me. And, um, you know, you go into our memorial exhibit and you look around these walls and you're surrounded um, by 2,977 portraits of people floor to ceiling, all four walls. and they are two and a half years old to 85 years old. They are literally, and you can tell this just by reading their names, they are from over 90 nations. They are from every sector of the economy, every ethnicity imaginable, every faith tradition. They are us. And you begin to understand that this tragedy isn't something that happened to somebody else. The unacceptability of indiscriminate mass murder is real. It's unacceptable. And as a world community, it has to be something we say we will not tolerate because these people are us. And so we tried very hard to give people access to the humanity of the victims. And, you know, when you're uh, in the memorial exhibit, there's a section, there's an interior space where we invited um, people who knew them, not the curator, not me, not somebody who didn't know these people, but people who loved them. Um, you know, family members, friends, neighbors, colleagues, to record remembrances of them. And we place snippets of these remembrances in this inner chamber of the memorial exhibit. And, you know, so many of these remembrances are funny and you laugh and they are poignant um, and you smile. You know, they are the stories that we all tell one another at family gatherings. Remember when Uncle Ed got drunk at Thanksgiving and tripped over the couch and everybody cracks up, right? Mm -hmm. The things we remember about the people we love are not the way they died. It is the lives they lived. And we very much focused on that as a way into the story. Um, So we hope that people come in now who don't have a memory of this event, recognize the historical import of it Uh, in terms of the ongoing consequences of 9-11 on the world we live in, but that they go away with an understanding of the humanity of the people who were killed. They're not abstractions. They're not just numbers. They're people. And that we all have a responsibility, not just to remember them, but to try to build a world where compassion wins over hate. 
Well, that's just all so uh, beautifully said and truly profound. I, I've been thinking as you've been speaking about the sense of satisfaction you must have in many ways after these 16 years associated in such an intimate way with the memorial and the museum of knowing that it's really achieved its goal and will continue to achieve the goal in the uh, sense that you just described. Before we have to take leave, time is always an issue when it comes to these conversations. I wonder, given all that's gone on in these last 21 years since 9-11, what continues to make you optimistic or, or gives you hope? Because you've come across as such a hopeful person in all that you've been talking about, despite the terror of what 9-11 represented. Oh my, that's a tough question, because I have to say, um, often these days I, I struggle to be hopeful. You know, I mean, it just feels like everything is um, is going in, in, in the wrong direction, if you will. You know, yeah. it's, been a rough, it's been a rough 21 years since 9-11. Um, I believe, personally, 9-11 was one of those ruptures in uh, history that uh, will be looked back upon as a, a moment of profound um, shift in the world. Uh, certainly in our nation. Um, people said that Ground Zero, where we're located here um, in New York, is where the 21st century began. Um, and, uh, you know, at least for the past two decades, it feels like it's been a century of dysfunction, uh, increasingly so. Um, and I think, you know, what was unthinkable in 2001, that um, terror would come to our shores in America. I mean, we lived in this sense of invulnerability that it would happen elsewhere, but it couldn't happen here, right? Well, 21 years later, I, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, extreme violence is more the norm than the exception in the world we live in. I mean, places that we thought were safe are no longer safe. Schools, grocery stores, you know, churches, synagogues. I mean, it, we have gone down a very dark road, and I'm not suggesting that all of this is directly connected to 9-11. But I do believe that there was um, a level of fear generated by this attack that, and fear is a very bad emotion. <laughs> you know, people yep. uh, move from fear to sometimes bad decisions. And um, I, I believe that fear has infected um, not only our nation, but I, I believe the world as a whole. And that it worries me, worries me for my grandchildren um, who are growing up in a, a country fractured you know, by virulent partisanship, and we can't seem to make our way to finding solutions to problems that, that, that are very real and that we all share. They're common problems. I mean, you know, we have an overheating planet. That's a big problem for all of us. And we can't seem to get to the place where we can be constructive and smart about what we're going to do together. Um, so it's hard to find the hope, but I, I believe that one of the reasons memorial museums like the 9-11 Memorial and Museum are so critically essential in our world is that they are the places where we are reminded about the worst of human behavior and actually the best of human behavior. Mm -hmm. And we are given stories that tell us that in the worst imaginable moments, people will do the most incredibly generous, selfless, courageous things on behalf of others. We saw it time and again on the day of 
the first responders who ran into danger knowing what they were going into, knowing they wouldn't come out um, and doing their jobs, their duty. We had civilians who had never planned to be in such a moment, people who chose to stay by the side of a colleague they had known for years who happened to be disabled in a wheelchair and said, I'm not leaving if you're not leaving. You know, we, we see stories of immense, um, I don't know, our, our capacity for generosity and, and compassion and empathy. Um, and, and we have a museum filled with those stories. So what gives me hope, even though it's hard to see at the moment, mm -hmm. um, is knowing that in other times, human beings have lived through dark times and we've lived through terrible things. And somehow we've mustered the courage to rebuild, to renew, to begin again, and hopefully, hopefully to advance um, in terms of our humanity. So that gives me hope. And that's what I want this place to teach my grandchildren. Well, that's the perfect conclusion on which to end this extraordinary conversation. We were all changed in some way by 9-11. Our lives have changed, clearly. But let us rekindle the best in human behavior to address what is happening in our world today. Thank you so much, Alice Greenwald, for what you have done uh, all these years, uh, helming the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, uh, and all the best to you as you close this extraordinary chapter in your own life. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Appreciate it. What an eloquent testimony from Alice Greenwald. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, Alice reminds us that we as Americans and as human beings have an obligation to never forget. And we have a responsibility to ensure that younger generations know what happened during the worst terrorist attack in our nation's history. Second, Alice says that we should not define those who perished on 9-11 by the circumstances of their deaths. Instead, we should see them in all their humanity as people just like us. Finally, the 9-11 Memorial and Museum reminds us about the worst of human behavior and the best. During terrible, tragic moments, she says, people will do the most incredibly generous, selfless, courageous things on behalf of others. And knowing that, during dark times, can give us hope for the future. Tune in next time to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 
We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.